So it is uh, December 22nd. It's 2013 for at least a few more days. Our message this morning is called Standing in the Shadows of Love. I was listening to Motown on the way to Chicago. You're going to have to forgive me. I know you, uh, you're used to pastors that only admit to listening to the Christian radio. I, I love the Christian radio, but I also find it boring after about 19 hours. And this time of year when they play only Christmas music, you know, uh, I think it's okay to love Jesus and love good music. Um, that's not an endorsement of Motown. I'm simply telling you that Good music is better than bad music. That's what I'm trying to say. Good Lord, I got to get in the Word. Turn with me to 1 Kings. Turn to 1 Kings. So I was in Chicago and I discovered Chicago-style pizza. And uh, I was recently in New York and discovered New York-style pizza. And I found out pizza's good anywhere you are, but it's better if you're in the city that uh, it's known for, Right? I'm proud to tell you that the arising church is arising. I'm proud to tell you that there are sincere, God-loving, God-seeking, Jesus-glorifying, Holy Ghost-filled people there and that the Lord is moving in their midst. Those brazen young pastors stepped up and said on a Wednesday night, you bring all of your questions. We won't duck any. We won't shy away. We'll open our Bibles, and if the answer's not in there, then we're all in trouble. And they've gathered about 50 people in that congregation who want to hear from God. No tricks, no frills, just the Word of God. I love them for that. This morning, our brother Zeke in Washington, D.C., is receiving a pulpit that his brother is surprising him with that's almost as beautiful as this one. And they've taken their stand. Life-changing ministries is not just touching the five continents that we're on and the I don't know how many missionaries now. We've begun to send missionaries to the states of the United States and we're not near done yet. I want to encourage you that the hour looks dark and that's when you're supposed to shine. Are you in 1 Kings 16? Since I said 1 Kings 16, you're going to have to abandon that and you're going to have to go to 2 Kings 16. I got all the mistakes out of the way up front. (laughs) In 2 Kings 16, in the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramallah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Can you imagine that one day, probably on a tombstone, your life could be summarized by one statement. Now, I'm a pastor. I've been to a lot of funerals. The ones that I do, I tell the truth at, regardless of what the truth is. Sometimes people get saved. Sometimes they get mad. But I have noticed through the years that people that live hellish lives, absolutely devoid of God, still try to mark their graves with something godly. It's because their relatives want to think of them that way. 
But in the heavenly books and in the heavenly recordings, God will record your life according to whether or not you did or did not do his will. This man had a forefather who did the will of God. But he departed from the ways of his forefathers. He had examples before him that were righteous. But he lived an unrighteous life. I spent more time in a vehicle this week than I have in a little while. Some 3,500 miles in six days. You know, if you turn on a radio, it was impossible to miss the things that are going on in our nation. I first want to address the church before we address anything else about our nation because judgment begins with the house of God. And if there's a fault to be found, we must start with us. When you look in this Bible, you ought to see your life before you see anyone else's. And when you examine your life according to the word of God, it fills your heart with mercy for those that are outside of the word of God. It doesn't mean that we shy away from the biblical truths, but it means that they're coded in the knowledge. That if he didn't rescue us, we would be right there in the flood of dissipation with everyone else. So as I began to think about it, I couldn't help but think about King Ahaz. Because I think we're in a time when we're departing from our forefathers. We're in a time when men are not doing what is right. They're not doing what the generations before them did. Every day in the news media, you can hear things that if they were said 80 years ago... There would have been a national protest. I listened this week to people make fun of the Bible. I listened to this week people call the Bible hate speech. I listened to this week actually one major communist news network called the statements from the Bible without saying that they were the Bible said that they were unchristian. If the book of Corinthians in the book of Romans, are unchristian, then we are really in a sad shape. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire. One of the most grievous things that we're known for around the world is that in this nation... We will fight and die for the right to kill our children. And the church has gone silent, scared to speak up. And in the name of Jesus, if you do not fight for unborn children, what right thing could you ever fight for? If your moral compass is so far off that we don't know that it is wrong to kill babies, then how far have we fallen? This was a time like that. See, history repeats itself many times over. One philosopher said, those that don't know it are doomed to repeat it. I have news for him. Outside of the power of Christ, you have no strength to do anything other than repeat it. We're all part of the same disease stock. And this power of sin has been working in the human race from the beginning. And except for the grace of God, there would be no escape. But I have found that grace. Look at verse 7. Ahaz has come into a time of warfare. And in verse 7, he sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and your vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. 
This man had fallen so far that though he's the king of the southern part of Israel called Judah, which means praise of God, the very stock with which Jesus would be born. The human ancestry of Christ is traced directly through this kingdom. And he's fallen so far that when he's in trouble, he's calling out to an Assyrian king. And he doesn't just say, I'm your servant. He says, I'm your vassal. Now, I love the word of God and whatever translation it's in. If you choose to read King James, I love you for having the understanding of more than one language. To me, it's a foreign language. If you love the new King James, praise God, you're stepping in the right direction. I think the New American Standard is an amazing translation. I think the NIV 84 is a pretty good translation. I've been reading it for 20 years every day, and they got this one wrong. Vassal. This word in Hebrew is son. It's Ben. My son's name is Judah Ben Yamin. Judah, the son of happiness. This Jewish king is proclaiming, I am your servant and I am your son. And what you need to know about a son in Hebrew is a son is like his father or he's not a son. If you don't bear the characteristics of your father, then you are not his son, even if you are genetically related. The good news is, even if you're not genetically related, in Hebrew, the word ben means that you are of the same similarity. You are a son of your father. So we can be sons of Abraham, although we're not genetically related. We can be like Abraham because we are like Abraham. This man's statement is astounding. He says, I am your servant and your son. In other words, I want to serve you and be just like you. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Saints, unfortunately, we live in a time period where what is called Christianity is but a pale comparison, a shadow of its former self. It's shocking. It's heartbreaking. And it's become so common that we might even be lulled to sleep by it. When the church itself is calling out to worldly things, calling out to worldly people for solutions, support, for validation, instead of calling on the throne of God for its validation, no wonder we have such a worldly church. These days, if you can put enough people in the seats, it justifies almost anything that you want to say. If you have enough resources, then you must be successful. I want you to know that one of the things Matthew 24 teaches beyond anything else is that in the last days, the love of most will grow cold. If you believe we're in the last days, then you must also open your eyes and look around you. People do not grow cold and announce it. They don't fall away and declare it. Instead, they simply say God is doing something else. They say that our God is not like that. They might even call a scripture unchristian because they don't recognize it as a scripture. They're not familiar enough with the book to know that. I want you to see in this man how it begins to happen. I am your servant and your vassal or son. 
Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. What happens when the resources that people gave to God and entrusted to the church are used for worldly purposes? What happens when men think that it's a statement of faith to drive a Bentley or buy a Learjet? This has become an accepted practice and it ought to be decried in every pulpit in America. This makes us a laughing stock to the rest of the world. And by the way, if your Bentley is a statement of faith, then what do we do with the poor or rich in faith? I have been in places where men could not speak and God opened their mouths. I have been in places where men could not walk and God gave them new legs and they walked. I have seen the demon possessed set free. I've seen more miracles in my short years than I have time to stand and tell you about, but I have never seen anything that convinced me that God wants you rich. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. It's hard. Why do you want to make it hard? Because we're pretty convinced that we can have everything that is the world's and cling to Jesus as well. See, this paves the way for every kind of immorality. You begin to soften all of your standards so that you can gather more resources. And what are your resources being used for? Feeding the poor around the world? Building orphanages? Do you know that the average... I don't want to say the denomination. There are denominations that the average church which exceeds 100 members still has an average missions offering a year of $500. If we're not interested in winning the lost, what is it we're interested in doing? And if you think the poor of the world can afford to come here to learn from us, you're wrong. But God has blessed us with the ability to go to them. Say, well, I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. I'm struggling from paycheck to paycheck. None of you are struggling to put clothes on your body. And if you are, all you got to do is ask the guy next to you and he will unload all of his ugly clothes for you. I stopped taking clothes to foreign nations a long time ago because I never met anybody that was naked in any of them. I started bringing them the Word of God and food because I met people that were hungry for both in almost every nation I've gone to. This man was entrusted by God to gather these things for God's use. And instead, he used them as a means of spiritual prostitution. Look at verse 10. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar. If you go on to read this, Ahaz is so impressed by what he sees in Damascus He sketches down their altar. It's not an altar to God, friends. It's an altar to a God. And he wants it constructed and he finds a priest who will build it for him. You know, we live in a day where the church has a build it and they will come mentality. If your building is pretty enough, if your stained glass is pretty enough, surely the people will come. And if you wear the right kind of ecclesiastical clothes, you can be a devil 
But they'll come anyway because the people don't know the difference anymore. The biblical standards for a pastor have to do with the way that a man acts in his own home and we're willing to ignore it as long as he preaches well from a pulpit. By the way, on that note, if you don't have a place to go for Christmas and you would like to fellowship with the Stevens, our door is never locked. It's never shut. You're welcome. We want you to see how we live in our home. That's true for every man, woman, child in this building. We want you to see the way that we live. We want you to ask our children. We want you to examine their lives. And if we are not what we are behind the pulpit in the privacy of our homes, then you should denounce us and walk out. But if we are, then you might see something that's biblical. And we're far from the only ones. I just left in the last two months two fantastic ones. I've seen them all over the world. But it comes from a spirit that says, I don't care what they're doing in Assyria and I don't care what kind of success they're having. The world cannot have what belongs to God. And I will not yield and will not compromise. Look where this leads. They build the new altar. They rearrange the furniture in God's temple to accommodate a new altar. Look at verse... 13, King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest on the large new altar, on the large new altar. May I say that this is the way to every American's heart? If it's new and improved, we want it. If it's larger, we want it. If it's the largest church in the United States, it must be right, even if they have no moral backbone of any kind. If the largest abortion clinic is a stone's throw away from the largest church in America and there's a peaceful coexistence, we don't see a problem with it. Why? Because it's large and new. This is not the anti and other church message. I'm trying to tell you that we have been deceived and we need to wake up. God has arranged events to reach even the most wayward Christian who only gets their information from the A&E network because he wants your heart. See, God had a prescribed way to approach him. He decided where he wanted his gates of praise, where he wanted his bronze altar, where he wanted his washing laver, where he wanted the holy place and the most holy place, and no man has the right to change it. But when we decide we don't like God's prescribed way because, I mean, after all, in Assyria, they're drawing a bigger crowd with a large new altar. We just push God's right out of the way. Now, I want you to notice something. He doesn't get rid of it. Do you see the last part of that? It's on your screen. But I will use the bronze altar for seeking guidance. King Ahaz built a large new Assyrian altar in the house of God to draw a crowd. But he wanted to keep God's altar for himself off to the side because he was deceived enough to think that God would not notice his duplicitous heart. I'm going to tell you I can't think of a single story in the Older Testament that is more accurate for the way the church as a whole, at least what is called the church, acts in this country. We are shocked and we're appalled when TV executives display that they hate the Word of God. And we're shocked. You know why? Because we love the programs they produce. 
We hate it when Hollywood lashes out against Jesus. You know why? Because we love the filth that they spew and we buy. Church, we cannot be in love with the world. And every once in a while, God will let you get slapped right in the face. And you know why these people have no fear? Because Christians threaten to boycott. They threaten to do so many things. And if it means they don't get their Starbucks latte, or it means they're inconvenienced in any way, the vast majority just back down because they love the world. Saints, I don't love the world. I don't love anything in it. I believe that it is fallen and corrupt and that God put us here to breathe life into it. You can't do that by being vengeful and mean. You can't do that by being spiteful. But if you cannot cling to the word of God as your moral compass, then what would you be ministering about? Turn with me to Isaiah 59. Look at your neighbor say, it's okay, it's going to get better. Pastor gets like this sometimes. It's not going to get better yet, but in a few more scriptures it will. We still, we still riding this horse for a while. I want to make sure we get it because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I don't want to decry the music industry and find out that my church is listening to the same stuff that we're decrying. So I thought you said there was no prohibition on secular music. If you cannot tell what is produced by the spirit of the world and nastiness, then we have lost all discernment. There's a difference between a love song spoken to two people who are in covenant together and somebody singing about fornication all over the earth. You in Isaiah 59? Say it's not better yet. Isaiah 59, 9. So justice is far from us. And righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Look at verse 12. For our offenses are many in your sight. And our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us. And we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord. Turning our backs on God. Fomenting oppression and revolt. Uttering lies our hearts have conceived. When is the last time you heard anybody honestly make a confession like that? In my experience as a pastor, while people are falling away, they claim to be in the will of God and rebuke you for caring that they're headed the wrong direction. That's what we've taught in the American church. It used to be that if a pastor gave somebody a warning, that was enough to halt them in their tracks and at least go fall on their face and ask God about it. Now, it doesn't take 30 seconds to get a snappy response that says, basically, who do you think you are? Well, for years, I thought I was your pastor until I corrected you. Now, I love you, church. This is not your problem. It's our problem. It's not their problem. It's our problem. You know, you can't preach about something you don't really love. 
You can't go share with people the hope of humanity if you're not living squarely in it. And maybe therein lies the reason for the death of evangelism. Maybe we just are a little caught up in all that's going on around us. Look at verse 14. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes, what's it say? Pray. Whoever shuns evil becomes prey. So you may love the show Duck Dynasty. It may be just what lights your fire. When I see it, which I never have, but I see the merchandise everywhere, I just see men with beards, big beards. I think that's really cool. That's the extent of what I know about these people. But when I read the transcript, I recognized that a man is quoting 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Can we put that on the screen? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's catch that next verse. This is an important part. And that is what some of you, come on, say it again, were, were not are, were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that I'm a pastor that knows about the people in my church. And there are men and women who have come out of homosexuality in this church, but they came out. There are men and women in this church that have come out of adultery, but they came out. There are men and women that have come out of addiction in this church, but they came out. It is not hateful. It is not mean-spirited, and it is certainly not unchristian to look at someone and say what you're doing is wrong, but you can come out. In the name of Jesus, there is hope. I watched MSNBC put a spokesman on that said these words were unchristian. I watched four news commentators openly mock a passage from Romans and they didn't quote it as Romans. And the last one to speak said, oh, that's certainly compassionate and Christian with sarcasm. But they know they can do it. They know they can do it and they are thumbing it in your face. The day is coming, Charlie. It is coming. But judgment begins with us. Maybe we need to tidy our house before we worry about what's happening in the liberal news media. See, if the church had not fallen so far, we would not be in this shape. If pulpits had not been so passive and there had not been six-foot daffodils standing behind pulpits preaching like icicles, this would not have happened. It's shocking to me that you can quote the Word of God And people call it hate speech. And we have to argue about whether or not it's constitutionally protected. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. 
He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west men will fear the name of the Lord and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory for he will come like a pent up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Our God does not want a single person to perish. He spoke into darkness and brought order right out of it. He's been doing the same ever since. We don't need a politically correct version of the gospel, and we certainly don't need some mean-spirited, ugly, nasty redaction of the Word of God. I don't know nearly enough about the man they're talking about, but when I read his quotes in total context... I'm proud to say I agree with a thousand percent. I would say it today, tomorrow, and every day, but I would choose slightly different words. Some of them were graphic. Did you know that the Bible's graphic too, though? To me, it sounded like two guys at a hunting lodge somewhere. But isn't that why y'all like these people? They're like two guys at a hunting lodge. Isn't that why y'all tune in to watch them? I went out of town and... My house had a duck dynasty party. I don't know why my wife likes those guys with all those beards and doesn't want one on me. Because I'd like to repent of shaving for the rest of my life. And I just so happen am able to grow a beard that starts at my eyes and goes to my toes. I understand though. Something in it calls out to us because there's a semblance of a godly family there. Do you notice how the world hates it when it's obvious though? Which makes you wonder what were you doing buying A&E's products before? What were you doing watching A&E's stuff before? When they're this fiercely opposed to the word of God, why do we love it the way that we do? Perhaps there's some room for some discernment growth in our lives. I'm not throwing stones at you. Maybe it's just the only thing that you could find. I think God knows about our love affair with entertainment and he arranges these kind of things as a little slap in the face to wake us up. Go, hey, do you realize who you're fraternizing with? By the way, if you read, I quoted to you earlier, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. If you read the sixth chapter of 2 Corinthians, it's where he says, come apart, be holy. What fellowship does Christ and Satan have? the temple of God with the temple of demons. We need to be careful, saints. The sirens are singing their song and lives are crashing on the rocks. You need to be so in love with Jesus that you're aware of what's going on. It's not a surprise to me that the devil wants to kill me and that he hates everything that is God. I live that way. I live that way every day. For me, church is not a Wednesday and a Sunday event. Sunday and Wednesday is when I get to tell you about it. And by the way, I usually do it on Monday night and Thursday night and Tuesday night and Saturday night as well. Because I don't believe there's such a thing as a part-time Christian. 
I totally sold out. Not a sellout, sold out. A sellout is what people are doing when they're sending God's resources to the world and building big new altars to attract crowds, rearranging the way that God said it should be done for a way that's more pleasing. I remember in the 90s when I got born again, people were making out like Oprah Winfrey was a Christian. And then she said some things that removed all doubt. They quit watching for about a week. Because, you know, I mean, it's good entertainment. Saints, we need to be careful. This is not the anti-TV message. It's really not. It is the let's wake up, stick our finger in the water and realize the climate. How do people grow cold? You start loving the things of the world and the things of God seem unattractive to you. You start having conversations like, well, I know he was quoting the Bible, but I mean, did he have to say it like that? See, you start finding little areas of compromise, and they grow. All you have to do is read about how Ahaz's life ends, and you'll figure out what I mean, but I'm not doing it today. Turn with me to Isaiah 5. Say there when you're there. I had intended to read you the whole fifth chapter, but I often change my mind. And now I'm just going to read to you the 20th verse. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. An article that I read while driving, that ought to scare you to death. Don't worry, I was almost 2,000 miles from here. And it was about 3 o'clock in the morning. I had the whole road. And in a one-time four-wheel drive, I feel like I'm entitled to the whole road. You need to know that about me. On Judgment Day, most of the things that I will account for will happen behind the wheel of a four-wheel drive. Men and women were proud to announce through one of those networks that it had been scientifically proven that homosexuality was not a choice, that it was a genetic condition. They didn't cite a study. They didn't give the proof because they don't need to. People are going to gravitate towards what justifies their lives. I'm not here to preach against homosexuals. At least they're homosexual full-time. If Christians were Christians full-time, we'd already changed the world. My problem's not with homosexuals. My problem is with the church that does not hold up a clear standard that both says it's wrong and you can change. That says it's wrong and the Lord loves you enough to lead you right out of it. The same way He led me out of my filthiness. What difference does it make what color your mud is? What color the muck and mire is? What difference does it make what it is? You were stuck in dying and you needed to be brought out. But we love our sin and hate everyone else's. It's time for the church to wake up. We're surprised when this kind of absurdity happens, when Cracker Barrel takes all of their merchandise out in a single day. Cracker Barrel doesn't want to be associated with someone who quotes the Bible. You thought because they served chicken fried steak with white gravy that that meant they were good old people, huh? <laughs> Makes me wonder whether I want to eat their chicken fried steak. But see, I'm like that. I don't have a cause every day 
And I've never protested anything. But I stand for the Lord everywhere I go. For me, it's not a fad. It's not a flash. It is my life. I can't find a single man in the Bible that God approved of that was not that way. What do we call this message? Shadows of love, because I was listening to Motown. Standing in the shadows of love, I'm getting ready for the heartaches to come. Can't you see me standing in the shadows of love? I get ready for the heartaches to come. I want to run, but there's nowhere to go because heartaches follow me, I know. Without your love, and love is what I need, it's the beginning of the end of me. You've taken away my reason for living. You know, I don't know whether you ever thought about those words. I had to print them out because I'm like everybody else. I sing three words. I forget three. I sing three more, you know. R-E-S-P-E. You know how to spell it, you know. (laughs) You know why I like the four tops? Because they're confused with the temptations every day. I'm kidding. I like the four tops because for four decades they made music together and they never changed their lineup. You don't see loyalty in the church anymore, much less in the world. In the church, as long as you put butter on the bread and you put the, the cherry on top of the, on the cake, everybody loves you. The first time you sing out of tune, just like Joe Cocker, they stand up and walk out on you. I really shouldn't have listened to so much Motown, Charlie. Are you hearing me? For four decades. Now, I don't think that everything they did is good. As far as I can tell, their lives were pretty ungodly. That's not the point. They united around a cause for four decades. What would happen if just five churches in this city united around a cause for four decades and did not let up one day, sang their song everywhere someday, everywhere, uh, every day? What if we were that consistent? Levi Stubbs was their lead singer. Not to be confused with Rufus. He was the temptations. Levi Stubbs was unusual. He was a baritone, Matthew, not a tenor. See, all of the Motown hits were sung by tenors as lead vocalists. In fact, it was so awkward that the guys who were writing music for Levi always wrote the part of a tenor even though he was a baritone and met him strained for it. You know why they said they did that? They liked the sound of a southern gospel preacher, the strain in his voice. They made him reach for it. Apparently, there's something in us that is yearning for an impassioned, consistent stand. Four Tops, to me, exemplified loyalty. They exemplified something that was unique. But the reason that I gravitated towards the song is, did you hear? In Isaiah 59, 9, our deep shadows... We are standing inside of a shadow. Another one that is so popular that you can probably quote it without it being on the screen is Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How many of you know that over and over and over in the Bible, shadows are not a good thing? 
When justice is far and the light is far, people are said to be in the shadows. If you say so-and-so is a shadowy character, you're not usually complimenting him. Even spies, we say they play shadow games, which means they're manipulating and deceiving. How many of you want to be described as a shadowy character? At least the four tops knew where they were standing and why. Shadows are often negative in the Bible. But I found this week some shadows that I want to live in. Can you say the times are dark? But I know the man with the solution. Turn with me to Psalm 36. Say there when you were there. Y'all tired of me yet? The truth is I'm just now getting wound up. Psalm 36. Look at verse 7. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your... What's that word? See, our God is so loving that he designed a culture for you to see. And he designed it. And Paul asked a question in Romans 9. He says, what then? What advantage is there then in being a Jew? He answered his own question. He said, much in every way. This is not Eric, the Gentile pastor, trying to get you to become a Jew or to be envious of Jews. It's simply that their culture was designed by God. And since their culture was designed by God and recorded in the 39 books of the Tanakh, we can learn from their culture. Why would the psalmist describe God as having wings? What a strange thing. Is God a bird? He created birds, but he's not a bird. See, in the psalmist's mind, he remembers that in Numbers 15, all Jewish men were required to wear a talit. The corners of these talit are called kanaf. The very edges of them with these tassels are called zitzit. They have 613 knots in them because the commands of God given in the Torah were 613 in number. The idea was that he would be covered in the commands of God. Would you stand up, Abby? Boy, isn't Abby pretty? Turn around, Abby. Say hi to everybody. Wave. Abby is my girl. And when Abby is scared, her daddy wraps his arms around her and says it's going to be okay. The psalmist is recognizing something. How priceless is your unfailing love, both high and low among men. Find refuge in the shadow of your wings. The imagery is of God as a loving father wrapping his arms around both high and low. Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. Let's put that on the screen. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This, this carried with it a shadow. By the way, all Jewish men in the first century took these, put four poles on the edges... It becomes a hopa at that point. You get married under it. The idea is that my family, my life will be wrapped up in the commands of God and no other thing. It is my highest and first responsibility. When we dwell in this, we benefit from a different kind of shadow. The shadow of God's protection. 
Now, I'm sharing this with you because there's a stark reality here. You're going to stand in one shadow or another. You're going to be in a shadow of death that is destruction and wreaks destruction everywhere. Are you going to be in a shadow that is life and protection and abundance? And our God is inviting people out of the shadow of death and into the shadow of His protection. See, whatever you stand closest to is going to cast a shadow on you. So ask yourself, am I reaping death and destruction or life in abundance? Now look at where you're standing. Do you spend more time loving the world and the things in it? Or loving God and the things that have their origins in the heavens? We profess well with our mouths, but often our actions don't back up our claims. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest or abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Guys, if we don't stand next to Him, then we do not have the benefits of His shadow. But if you do stand next to Him, look at what He said in Isaiah 49. This might surprise you. When addressing the situation of injustice, Say 49, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. Who in Revelation 19 pulls a double-edged sword out of their mouth? What does Hebrews 4 say that sword is? It's the very word of God. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. Jesus is the king of the Jews and he is Israel personified. Where did he hide him and polish him? Where did he develop him? In the shadow of his hand. When you walk in the commands of our God, you're in the hands of our God. We have so contorted grace that it is not grace anymore. Grace is not a license for immorality. Grace is the chance to do better tomorrow than you did today. We have so contorted repentance Repentance is not temporary remorse. I don't care whether you're sorry or not as long as you turn around and run in the other direction. But I suspect you won't do it if you're not sorry. You won't turn around and run unless you hate sin. Saints, the church has a responsibility to display these things in our lives. The real goal is that we're overshadowed. Did you see how when Abby came to my arms, she was completely swallowed by her father? Turn with me to the book of Exodus. You'll be in the 25th chapter, and let's talk about being overshadowed. In Exodus 25, verse 17. Make an atonement cover of corrupted gold. 
Why pure? Why does God want things that are pure? What he's about to build represents among the most precious things the world has ever seen, and it needs to be purely divine in nature, pure gold. So often we're trying to bring God something that is not pure. So often it's partly gold. It's mixed with good intentions, but it's not pure. He wants purity. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. (laughs) Did you notice there's a difference between those things, by the way? One is pure gold and what's the other? Hammered gold. Some things are created and some things are uncreated, friends. They simply are. There are some things that are so attached to God, they are the substance of God. They were not creations. They are God. We're about to read about mercy. God does not display mercy. He is mercy. He's the definition of it. The same God that struck Ananias and Sapphira dead and swallowed Korah's rebellion is mercy. So we cannot read his word and say it's not merciful. He's the definition of mercy. But the living beings, the cherubs that we're about to see, they are created beings and so they are hammered. It's a bit of a spiritual interpretation, but you came to this church and I'm giving it to you. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. God wanted a certain picture of his mercy seat. He wanted it to be purely divine. And he wanted the cherubim's wings stretched upward while they faced each other, casting a shadow upon his mercy seat. Those of you that have heard the description of God's throne. We read about it today. We sang about it today. Know that there are four living creatures that have their wings stretched upward and God resides above them, above an expanse of glass. It seems that he was trying to picture something that was purely the mercy of God that he was enthroned upon. What does it mean to be overshadowed by God. It's something that is born in you that really is not part of you. It's a part of God. He loaned His divine substance to you. And He's enthroned on you as you live out what He's showing you to do. God's throne is called a Merkabah. That's what the Israelis call their tanks today. It means chariot of fire. It's a good name for a tank. God's throne is a war machine. And the way that he wages war is that he shows purely divine mercy to those who seek him and he shows judgment without relenting to those who refuse. He is the dividing line in the sand. And what we think about him, how we act towards him, how we live in relation to him is everything. overshadowing. Turn with me to Hebrews 9. Listen to how important this was. Hebrews 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly 
sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, and its first room were the lampstand, the tablet, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Oh, there has never been a sadder line written than that one. Man, how I wish he had discussed them. The thing is, is that people already knew them. When he says the cherubim of the glory, the glory there is a euphemism, a Jewish idiom for God's name. They're the cherubim he's enthroned upon. The shadow that is being cast on the mercy seat is the shadow of God. You're going to live in one shadow or another. One is loving, one is merciful, one is empowering, and the other is meant simply, well, it's called the shadow of death. It's been known about since the most ancient of times, and yet in every generation, men have to discover for themselves the difference. In our generation, the righteous men have acted corruptly and it's like a muddied spring. In our generation, the church has lost its voice and its clear call, and so people call what is good evil and what is evil good, and they just go about their business. There was a generation like this once, Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Say there, when you were there, we will be in the first chapter. In the Gospel of Luke, starting around 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. The angel Gabriel to Nazareth, what a strange way to begin this story. The gospel makes it clear that Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus had another name, Octavian, and he was the nephew of Julius Caesar. There was a great war after the death of Julius Caesar that you've read about probably in Shakespeare's plays. What you may not know is that Julius Caesar was said to have ascended into heaven in 44 B.C. The Roman prophet Virgil, or poet if you like, wrote a song of ascension for him and the world deified Julius Caesar. So Octavian changed his name to Caesar Augustus. I am the emperor of the world, the revered one. But he was not satisfied with that. So he commissioned poets to sing, Peace on earth and goodwill to men, for the Son of God has come. This is what the Roman Empire, the largest empire in the world at the time, was saying about the birth of Caesar Augustus. I don't want to get into every detail with you because I will most certainly hurt your feelings. They worshipped him in December with 12 special days of Advent and gift giving. That is not so much my point this year. 
It's in the middle of that. In the middle of the most apostate, dark, terrible, godless times that an angel shows up. And he's going to share something beautiful. And where does he go? He goes to Nazareth. Man, you can't even get there from here. You've got to start somewhere else. It's, it's nowhere. I've been there twice. You could blink and miss it. They're talking about putting a 40-foot tall statue of Jesus there so that tourists can find it now. This is not how I would have won the world. And I doubt seriously it's how you would go about it. And then of all the people that this angel could appear to, what's verse 27? To a virgin pledged to be married. A virgin pledged to be married. To a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the virgin's name was Miriam, Mary. In the same line as Ahaz. Is that crazy? In the same line as couple prostitutes in the same line as more than one rape occurred in the same line as a civil war occurred in the same line as treachery and sedition had occurred not many of us were royal or noble by birth were we and as were such some of you but you were washed you were changed you were sanctified this is not how I would have done it but maybe the Lord is trying to convey a message to us. Listen to what happens. Verse 28, The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. What do you mean the Lord is with a teenage girl pledged to be married who's not experienced anything of life? What do you mean the Lord is with you? Do you know where she She's not in Rome. She's not ruling the world. She's the least respected member of her own home. The lowest of the social strata. An unmarried juvenile girl. And this is where our Lord starts. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Let me ask you, what kind of life finds favor with God? Let's just fast forward to 2013. Before it's over, let's examine it. You think Mary was at the Britney Spears concert the night before? Think Mary was on YouTube twerking? wear a cross they must be a Christian right they go to church they must be Christians right I mean they go to the biggest church in the nation they I mean how could that not be a good thing Mary was a lowly person from a lowly place of no account with men of any kind probably the only man that thought she was special in her whole life was Joseph and he's about to have serious doubts We're Protestants. We don't often esteem Mary. But her life speaks such a message if you just listen. 
she had positioned her life in a way to find favor with God. Do you know of a single... (laughs) No extra books in your Bible. Do you know of a single miracle Mary ever did? Do you know of anything that she did to stand out prior to this moment? But she positioned her life in a way that would find favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Yeshua. Oh my goodness. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. He is prophesied about in Isaiah 49. He's the one that was held in the shadow of God's hand and would become a quiver full of arrows in the Lord's hand. Mary says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Can you imagine your fear? Any girls in this room below the age of 18? Y'all are all shy. Abby, you win. Come here, sweetie. Come on now. Abby's beautiful. I'm partial to Abby's. Come on, Abby. How old are you? Twelve. Sash, how old are you? Stand up, Sash. Somewhere between Abby and Sasha, you have to envision Mary. Both of these girls' daddies are in this room. Can you see your daddy's eyes back there? Could you look your daddy in the eye and say, Daddy, I'm pregnant, but have no fear. It's of God. (laughs) That'd be hard to do, wouldn't it? (laughs) Sasha, your daddy's right next to you. Could you look at him and say, Daddy, I know I've been away at college and all, and this is not a tumor. It's a baby. But don't worry, Daddy, it's, it's of God. Now, I know these men to be godly. I've examined their lives. I know them to be kind and compassionate. But their daughters wouldn't want to come home and say that. Do you really think that in socially conservative Nazareth, Mary is not filled with fear? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Saints, she positioned her life in something that is purely God. It wasn't hammered. It was not the work of any man. Only He could lead her to a place of purity that is found in obedience. And so He was enthroned over her. The King of glory came into this world through a lowly Nazarite girl who was not even married yet because she positioned her life in a way that God could bless. What would be possible if you took painstaking review of your life and you said, Lord, I want to dwell in your commands. I want to dwell so close to you that your shadow is always covering me. I've seen your light and I love it, but I want to be so close to you that your shadow is dripping on me. Oh, you might could see a miracle like that. 
Your life stops being about you at that point and starts being about what he can do through you. Mary said one of the most courageous things in these next few verses. Listen to her answer. She speaks to this angel and says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. This is what has died from the church. We no longer position our, our lives in a way that God can bless and if He asks something sacrificial of us, we say surely someone else will do it or God Himself will do it if He wants it done. Mary said, I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what happens. My whole life has been about being positioned in a way that could be blessed. And so the Lord overshadowed her very existence and brought out of a lowly girl the king of the universe. It's not right to deify Mary. It's not right to pray to Mary. It would offend her. It's not right to build statues of her and venerate her. It would offend her. She was a first century Galilean Jew who would not have accepted a graven image especially of her. But it is right that all generations call her blessed because blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Blessed are the obedient. Blessed is the one who's overshadowed by God. You can go on and finish the chapter, saints. Or you can read it in Mark, or Matthew rather, 4, where I like to read it. He says, oh, the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. In you the scripture is fulfilled. It's Matthew 4, 14. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You want to know how to get people out of standing in the shadows of love where they're broken, where there's nothing left of them, where their lives have been destroyed? And into the arms of a loving God, you have to position your life in a way that God can bless. And when you do, he will overshadow you and the whole world will take note. What other possible explanation is there for us even knowing about the life of a first century Galilean virgin? It could only be because she positioned her life in a way God could bless and boy, did he bless it. Now, the world is fond of saying Jesus came into the world in the month of December. I will not take issue with you today. We won't tribble over details. This is a good time to think about the time the light entered the world. It's a good time to consider that everything is possible for him who believes. It's a good time to ask yourself, rather than just participating in gluttonous materialism and some kind of strange orgy of the things of the earth that we want, iPods and Xboxes and whatever it is that you want, maybe we could actually think about positioning our lives in a way that God can overshadow. And then it may actually honor him, even if it's at the wrong time and done in the wrong way and all of those things. Hezekiah did a Passover in the wrong month and God honored it because his life was positioned in a way that God could bless.
My whole hope, saints, is that you find yourself dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. It's pure. It's beautiful. He does not change like the shifting shadows. Please stand to your feet.